Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the writer John Trigana. Hi John, how's things? Hello, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, uh, it's sunny down here in Lyme, which is very nice. Lovely part of the world for it to be sunny, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, I think things are starting to feel a bit more positive with things reopening, theatres reopening, are you feeling like we're on the verge of getting back to a sense of normality almost? Um, well, clearly, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting a little bit brighter, but I think until people come out, people put on shows and people are, are, are get rid of that anxiety of maybe of, mm-hmm. of going to the theatre, you know, I think a lot of people who go to theatres are the sort of people who'd like to wear masks a lot, or uh, mm. you know, don't gather in, uh, you know, don't gather in pubs and, and and hang all over each other. So they're a cautious uh, group, I think. So that when when people start coming back to theatre and, and feel confident, then I think we'll, yeah. uh, we'll 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 see a bigger light. I think it's about companies making an effort to give the public peace of mind that theatre is safe, welcoming people back. Because as well, people have been missing theatre, but we've had access to Netflix during lockdown. It's like, how do we get people back into theatres in a way that makes them feel comfortable and confident? About uh, yes, being... I, I think that all shows should you know, produce some sort of what happens when you arrive, what happens when you come in, how you will feel, because I, I also think that that would help publicise the show as well, mm. rather than, you know, uh, people need to feel comfortable, and when they feel comfortable, they will come out, I think, because I think we've all watched everything on Netflix now. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Um, the way I want to start this podcast is the way I've started every episode of this so far, and I want to ask you... How did you first get interested in theatre? Uh, I saw uh, Jonathan Gower, the uh, great Welsh writer, uh, playing Maul in Toad of Toad Hall in Snaky uh, Boys Grammar School mm-hmm. way back. And uh, and he was brilliant. And so I, I decided then that I, I I wasn't particularly good at anything. I was quite good at football and maths. But um, but I wanted to, to get involved in, in, in the drama set. And then I... I joined uh, when I left school. I did some school plays. Never, never the leads. Always like the second sphere carrier. But I managed to get into uh, an amateur theatre company, and I, I 
I really enjoyed those years. And, uh, and then I ended up um, going to uh, drama college in Cardiff when I was about 23, I think. When did you kind of decide this is what I want to do for a living? I think it was in the absence of of, of not wanting to, not not really having any ambitions. I, I was in a small town in Clenethe. I, I, I think I wanted to run my father's clothes business and, and, and do amateur theatre and, and, and play football and play in a local rock band. I, I didn't really have any aspirations. And then my father said the business was going under. Well, not going under, but they, they would have to close because of the recession in the 80s. And mm. he said, what do you want to do? And, and I sort of thought, well... I'd already done a little bit of TV because I was a guitarist that could speak Welsh and I did an S4C series. And so I thought, well, yeah, let's let's learn how to do this. I, I've had a lot of experience, but I haven't really been taught uh, anything. And the year I spent in Cardiff was, was fantastic, really brilliant. I was going to say, what, what was that experience like of... Um going from Sanasi, a small town in Carmarthenshire, to the big city. Was that a big deal for you, going away to drama school in Cardiff? Uh, I, I, spent, I spent 15 years in London after that, so Cardiff was not, not quite so big. Mm. But what, I, what was brilliant was that it, it, it was challenging, and it was intellectually challenging, and until that point, I don't think I had an intellectual challenge. Yeah, you have to learn a lot of lines and, and do various things, but, but that, that really brought it home to me and I acted then for a few years after that and and you know I did okay but I kind of realized it wasn't for me right. um, and then I went to London uh, to play in a, a rock band so I sort of gave acting up completely uh, and it was only in my late 30s that I started writing um, but I, I used all the experience from acting to, to think what 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 do people want to say you know, especially in TV, they don't want to talk about cups of tea and pieces of toast and uh, how are you today? You know, you want sort of interesting stuff to say. So I think the acting really helped me in my writing. Mm. I'm coming out to the Royal Welsh College. What were the challenges for you after you graduated? Well, it's fortunate because I can speak Welsh. So mm. I had a certain amount of income for, you know, a good few years in my late 20s, or in my mid-late 20s. Uh, but I really wanted to, you know, as all actors do, I really wanted to make it. And and I did some uh, fringe stuff in London, um, which got some really lovely reviews, and I did a, some plays in Edinburgh. Uh, but I got a couple of big chances to... Uh, I, I, I got down to the last two to play Laertes opposite Mel Gibson. Wow. <laughs> which is a funny story, because I, I'm five foot nine and there, there were all these tall actors six foot six foot one and they all got cleared out because Mel Gibson's only about five foot five so <laughs> there's an only there's an two other guys left but and I, I so I didn't get that and then I didn't get a part in first prime suspect and I thought hang on a sec you know I'm only doing Welsh stuff it's good but it's not chat it's not really challenging and it's not really particularly artistic so, yeah, so I, I went back to my first love, really, which was playing in bands, and I spent my 30s up in London. Uh, mm. And it wasn't until I was my, my late 30s then that my sister, Catherine Tregenna, who's a famous TV writer, um, she was an actress in a series, and then she became a writer, and then it finished, and she didn't know what to do. So I had this weird idea 
I sent her a couple of pages. She sent me five pages. I sent her nine. And we had the script. It was a really interesting, funny, kind of charming script with mm-hmm. a rom-commy thing. We sent it to the BBC. And of course, you know, you don't do that anymore. And, and it, it was incredibly lucky because an aspiring young script editor mm-hmm. um, found it in the in a pile and read it and and, and put and pushed it forward. And that aspiring young uh, script editor was Gary Owen. Who's, oh wow. Uh, now, Wow. Best, best, best loved and best known theatre writers. So that was very fortunate. And how, and did you, how did you find the process of writing with your sister? Brilliant. We yeah. we both uh, we both loved sitting in pubs in afternoons, <laughs> spinning stories, and you know I I was generally the secretary, which because um, I you know I was quite sort of organised a lot of stuff, but. Yeah, it was great actually because writing with somebody else is very easy. You can you can think is the guy wearing a black hat or a white hat? And you can ponder that for ages. Where if I said to you, "What's he wearing? White hat, black hat?" You go white hat. I go right, fine. And then you can move on to yeah. something more, more. You know that it, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's how it works really. And. Um... What is your kind of process as a writer? Has it changed over the years and does it like depend what you're working on at the time? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I've done TV, I've done theatre, I've done a musical, I've done yeah, sort of literary pieces as well. But I think it's all about gathering as much material as you can and uh, writing some stuff down, but don't necessarily start at the start of it. Find some key moments in whatever you're doing. So if it's a film, what are the key scenes? Not not how do you start or how do you end. What are the key scenes? <clears throat> and once you've got those, then it's a sort of almost an element of of maths about it, really. I mean, if you're writing a 22-minute sitcom, you mo- you start off with 22 pages, uh, and and maybe 22 scenes, and then you can add scenes or X or cut scenes. But if you start creating a structure, that's really helpful. Mm. And you're not writing dialogue or anything yet. You're just you're just planning it and um and and, and keep on researching and, and gathering material. So it's it's yeah, it is all about that. It's about being comfortable in the world you're going to write about and and then having the excitement of trying to find something new to say about what you've gathered. Mm. And do you generally do you generally start with plot rather than character? Yeah, I'm very I'm very plot driven. Um, you know, I I I don't think I could write uh, a a play about three three characters in a flat. You know, I need entertainment. I need I need dancers. I need. Uh, you know, weird things happening. I need, I need. A, I wrote a play called Bugger All, um, where we had a um, in in the scene was the um, the five people get into a window cleaner's uh, lift and go up to the outside of a twenty-two story building. Yeah, I said to the director, you know, can you sort that? He said, yeah, no problem, because. But I like I, I just do I like to see different things. I, I, I don't like to 
try and even work in an area that I think someone's worked in before. And that's, I might sound a bit mm. grandiose, but there's no point trying to recreate something that's already existed. And it's hard to find things that haven't existed, which is why maybe I haven't had a massive career because the things I've liked generally haven't been commissioned. But when they have been commissioned, they've been very, very exciting for me because it's, mm. it's come from me and my weird head. And, and have you always kind of like that style, which I don't know whether we'd call it a more surrealist or less naturalistic style. Is that something you've always wanted to explore and always explored in your writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I when I was in London, I, I would see lots of pieces by uh, Theatre de Complicity. And my favourite uh, film writer is Kaufman. So it's kind of going left field, then left field, then left field, then left field. And you can end up in very strange places, but it's a logical route. It's not just, uh, you know, surreal slapstick or let's go here, let's go there. There's a kind of a, a logic to where I'm going. But it's in an, it, it, it might seem illogical, but there is a sort of route there. And um, I'd like to talk about um, Selegia Brusited that you worked on with Marcus, uh, which was a site-specific reimagination of and the work read by Dylan Thomas. Um, how did you decide on making it site-specific? To start off well, Mark Reese had a commission from National Theatre Wheels, and it was around Dylan Thomas's centenary in 2014. BBC were doing Any Wonder Milk Wood, and at the time, I was running Brown's Hotel in uh, in Larn because I've always had a day job, you mm. know. And uh, it's it's one thing being a struggling artist, but it's another thing being a struggling, starving artist. Yeah. So I've always I've always worked, and um, and I was actually employed as a tour guide, because I'd, I'd learned so much about Larn. I'd written a BBC book about Dylan Thomas. I'd done some essays for Bloomsbury and things. <clears throat> and I'd learned a lot about Larn and uh, all the buildings and everything. So I actually got employed, <laughs> which is bizarre, um, as a tour guide. And then Mark and I went round and I, and I spent a lot of time with Mark. And he said, I want to work on this with you. So Mark's vision was the site-specific thing. What he brought me in for was a bit of local knowledge right. and also to create a sort of narrative structure. So I created this idea that um, there was this weird guy who had hijacked a tour group by getting rid of the, the, the tour guide, um, mm. by sending him off on some romantic years or it didn't happen. And so this mischievous guy then gave up the people a map which was Mark then. Mark then took over that, that, that area. And I sort of resolved it as well. And I helped Mark with some of the performance aspects. But uh, yeah, no, I was very, very lucky to get that. And what kind of... What kind of elements did you have to take into account when you were making it site-specifically rather than um, in what we might call more conventional theatrical style. Um, well, it, it, it suited me down the ground because we opened up in a bus garage and then we had a guy sitting outside a house and then we had... <coughs> excuse me. Then we had the role character shouting at people with a megaphone from the castle walls. So this was very much the stuff that I, that I really liked. 
And um, I mean, one of the biggest challenges was the fact that initially we were going to send everybody on a particular route. And John McGrath, who was the head of National Theatre then, and Mark and I, we, we sort of had a chat and said, this isn't going to work. We need to let people flow around the town, go to where they want, and then rejoin us in an hour and a half to to pick up mm. on the on the narrative. So, but it, it, I, I just love stuff like that. You know, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, somebody said to me, like, you know, we need to do a play in a zoo with parachutists and a brass band. I'd be like, yeah, brilliant. I'd love, you know, that's... Yeah. I, that's where my kind of brain works, you know. So that's why, you know, I've never really gone in for trying to work on soaps and stuff because, you know, it's you're doing yes, you're you're making money in the art, but is it really art at all? So mm. yeah, so you know, and it was it was brilliant and um, and it got you know top ten plays of the year in the Guardian, which was fantastic and uh, yeah, and then I. I I had an in with National Theatre Wales, uh, which I kind of enjoyed ever since, really. And how did you engage with Lan and the community when you were making the piece? Well, the, the first thing we did was we got all the kind of heads of the various organisations, like the WI, the church, um, business people. We got the, the poetry, because Lan is this ancient corporation. We got the mayor, we got them all in a room and said, this is what we'd like to do. And we'd like you to be involved. And Larne being the place it is, everyone was quite chuffed that they would talk to, you know, early on rather than finding out about it later. Yeah. And we got we got huge support from everybody. And, they, <clears throat> you know, the whole the whole town came out to see it. A lot of people were in it. We had the Larne players. Um, mm. There was about a couple of dozen of them were actively part of the show. So it was very much, um, and it was the history of Larne as well. So it was a really glorious event, really. And, uh, and, and funny enough, because I'd been in Larne for a few years then, on the first night, which was the kind of the, the, the dress that people could come to, local people could come to, Charlie Dale um, unfortunately couldn't turn up. So I had to play his character, which was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know, and, and this was like learning the script at two o'clock for a ten o'clock show. Oh god! And, um, so yeah, so I actually could see, you know, rather than being at the back of the hall or the back of the castle or the back of the car park, yeah, you know, I could actually see the people really enjoying it, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant! That's fantastic. Um, I want to talk about um. You use, if I'm not saying this, a lot of transmedia or multi-platform storytelling techniques across your work. Um, what what is the creative potential that this gives you, and how do you how do you kind of use those techniques within your work? Well, the, the, the first sort of thing I did that sort of was was multi-platform was I went on a course which was run by Reese Miles Thomas for Kavla, I think, in about 2007-2008 and it was a course for writing for multi-platform and we studied all the kind of new YouTube uh, serials and stuff and we talked to a lot of people in America, you know, that, you know by, well, not before Zoom but like Zoom and so I, I, I thought, well, I, I want to 
I want to do something that's quite crazy. So I created this character called David Garland Jones, who was played by my friend Russ Gorman. And we did about 120 videos on YouTube. So David Garland Jones was an unemployed, alcoholic, pugnacious Valley's actor, uh, which isn't like Russ at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so we did a lot of that. And, we, you know, we ended up, you know, being in fashion shows and, and people like Joe, Calza- uh, Joe Calzaghi would appear. Not Joe Calzaghi, the other guy, the other... The other the other Welsh boxer, anyway. And the, and Nathan, the, Nathan. Nathan. So, you know, so it, was, it, it didn't actually lead to, lead to what it did actually lead to, to something because Russ got Stella and got a regular part mm. Stella because of it. And I, I started doing sort of um, comedy videos for businesses. So in, in that respect, and also I think in, in, in plays, I think you need to make films about you know how you're working on the play what what's going on you can't just rely on people turning up on opening nights because there's a lot of distractions these days and i think a one minute film about a play i think national theater wheels recently with the the possible play you know really good funky little videos that that that, that not just a poster or a thing um but i yeah i i, I try to bring you know you know various elements into various things, but but only if they work, I think. Mm. And how do you kind of judge what's going to work and what's not going to work? Is it just trial and error? I I've, I've done quite a lot of stuff over the years now, so I kind of know if an idea is. I've got about I've got about fifty ideas on the computer, which I'm probably never go anywhere, but I can't delete them. You know, they kind of almost remind me that I can be rubbish as well. But um, but when I've got a, a strong idea, I will see it through to the end, even if it doesn't end up being commissioned or even if it doesn't end up being performed, because it's 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 the creation of the art that interests me. Yes, you know, we'd love to make money, but it's really hard to make money yeah. in the arts anyway. You know, um, so it's it's all about your sort of, waking up in the morning or, or when you finish work, you know, five, six o'clock thinking, right, that's what I want to do now. And it's an exciting thing to mm. do. And and that's why I'd rather do something for myself and hopefully get it out there than do something for somebody else, which I might not enjoy. In fact, I, I at this stage of my life, I, I just don't think I could do that. Is it, is, it, is it as well about having the license to write what you want to write? And not yeah. having these external voices saying yeah. you should write it this way or you should write it the other way. Uh, yeah, and, and and you sort of you know you write for yourself, you edit for the public, but if something is commissioned, I am really happy that people come in and even deconstruct it or take it apart or say, well, this doesn't really work for me. Have you got any other ideas? Because I always have ideas. So yeah. if somebody says it doesn't work, then I'll find something else. So I'm never really married to it if it does get to a commission stage. Um, and it's very exciting, actually, when people cleverer than me um, really dig into your work. And they, mm. you know, because when they say something's really working, you think, well, that, that's, that's, I'm really pleased with that. Mm. And when they see something's wrong, you go, you know, how do we fix it? So I'm never, I'm never precious about it. And when someone points out something, it might be something that you hadn't have thought of before that gives you a completely new perspective on the script and it might spark <coughs> you off, isn't it? Completely 
different direction, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and, and, and generally, generally, when somebody says, look, on this page, you kind of know something's wrong. You might not know what it is. Mm. But very rarely do you write something fantastic and somebody says, yeah, we don't like that. That's not going to go. Because you kind of know it works. Mm. You kind of think that could be on stage or sung or, you know, and you can see it. Uh, so generally, when people do kind of uh, ask you to rewrite, you kind of know it wasn't 100% mm. in the first place. And you need that. You need that. You need, you need the script editors. You need the directors. You need the producers. You need... That thing goes from, you know, your laptop onto a stage. You yeah. know, it, it's, it's a long process. And unfortunately, in Wales, there aren't... Well, there's a lack of good script editors or dramatists. It's really world in Wales, I think. Especially in the well, West language. Absolutely. I mean, you can almost name, you know, you can name the theatre companies on one hand, and then, you you know, within those companies, there's a lot of scripts being sent. There's mm. a lot more writers now than there was... 20, 40, 60 years ago. Uh, people are much more interested in, in being creative. And it, it's, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, if you think about the Welsh plays that are transferred outside of Wales, you know, uh, Gary Owen's uh, play, um, uh, Iphigenia from Splot, that went to, that went to, a couple of Gary's plays have, yeah. gone, have gone around. But, but generally, we're looking at you know we're 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 not looking at a lot of, of of Welsh plays on the stage, and I don't mean English plays set in Wales. I mean Welsh plays. Mm. Welsh plays about our psyche, about our melancholy, about our self-deprecation, about our our history, our culture, mm. uh, and and if you think about Scottish and Irish plays, generally they are about their world. Yeah. They certainly couldn't couldn't happen in Maidstone or Margate, you know. They are about those worlds, and and we need a a, a more ambition in, in Welsh theatre. And I also think we need more dramaturgs, and we need more people who are enterprising enough to to to, to you know to, to help. And mm. and we also need writers that are prepared to work harder and work. And, and you know, and work within this system. I think it's really important. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. I'm I'm an emerging writer. If I've got a new play, where do I go with it? Like, who do I send it to in Wales? There's no literary department at the moment in the Sherman. We said there's going to be. Do I send it to Theatre Clyde or do I have to go outside of Wales? You know, it's a big. I think it's a big barrier for emerging Welsh playwrights. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what I what I did. I mean, you know, I, I did some Welsh TV when I was writing, and, and I made some money. Uh, and then I, you know, I didn't have a day job for a few years, but then I went back to the day job, and then I wrote a couple of plays and connected the theatre put them on. Right. And yes, that's not. There's no. There's no riches, or there's no. Uh, West End transfer, but you, you, you can put plays on. You can put the plays on, and it's it's hard, but you learn you learn a lot when you see your play in the flesh, mm. or even get a group of people around to read it. Yeah. Um, but it's 
if you're going to write a play that's going to you, you think might tour Europe or 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 England one day, uh, then it has to be of that kind of commercial element. It has to have the the big wow factor. Uh, and 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 we uh, but but going back on that, there there should be more plays by Welsh writers or Welsh-based writers happening in Wales mm. in in regular theatres. Uh, we got we have does you know we've got a number of theatres and not a lot of plays to go in them, unfortunately. I completely agree with you, and I'm certain that definitely is a conversation we need to be having post-COVID. Um, I'd like to talk about um, Hale Cremation now, um, which we hope for that, fingers crossed, to be produced by National Theatre Wales this year at some point, which follows the life of Dr William Price. Can you first of all tell me a little bit more about Dr William Price and how you came across the story and how the idea came about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it it's still on the table. I, I think it might it might be on next year or even twenty twenty three, but it, it won't happen this year. Um, but <clears throat> well, Doctor William Price is a remarkable figure. I mean, he, he lived for ninety three years. He uh, he was a doctor. He, he invented the NHS in Wales. We we for an Iron Bevan. He set up the first co op. He was a druid. He was. Uh, he didn't, he, even in his 30s, he wouldn't treat smokers. This is in the 1830s. Wow. He, believed in, he believed in free love. He didn't <laughs> believe that women were possessions, probably because he was a bit of a uh, shagger, let's say that. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, and then, you know, he, he lived this really mad life, you know, what, riling up people. He used to wear a green onesie and a fox hat and he used to drive around in a goat-drawn carriage and he, you know, he pissed off the Druids, he, 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 you know, he pissed off the church. But in his 80s, he had a child, and the child died, and he burnt the body of the child on the hill above Fantrasant at 7 o'clock when the chapels were coming out. And the people came up, and he almost got lynched, and he got arrested, and the, the body of his son, which was in a, a tin, was kicked off the fire. And he then went to Cardiff Crown Court and won the right to burn the body of his child on the hill. <clears throat> and this this happens at half time, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, you know, and, and then you know, he has another couple of kids, and then when he dies, twenty thousand people come to the field, and his wife wow. sells tickets. You know, he was in his eighties; his wife was twenty five, but she was a very powerful figure, obviously, to take on mm. this irascible maniac and to have children with him. And she was uh, she lived until about 1948, so it's quite remarkable, you know. Mm. And um, so I knew about it because there was a song called "I Don't Give a Bugger," which my mother used to sing years ago, which was about Dr. William Price. And and Carl Morgan, a friend of mine who runs, always uh, one of the creators of Swansea Museum, he, he brought some William Price artifacts to uh, to a Larne weekend, a strange weekend in 2014, when there were four Larne weekends and. And I looked at this stuff, and I looked at this picture, and I thought, oh, that's just quite astonishing. So I, there's a fantastic book by Dean Powell. It's 400 pages long, and it covers everything, and everything about Dr. William Price is in there, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and I just thought, because this man wasn't just a fantastic figure, 
he was he believed so much in Wales, its culture, its language. He was a chartist. He didn't like industrialists, although he did drink champagne with some industrialists. So he was a bit of a a bit of a maverick. And he but he wanted Wales to be pure and fantastic and and not colonised by England and absolutely yeah. sort of pure in its ideology and in its dreams and culture. And that's what that's what the hook was for me. It wasn't just this the life of this incredible guy. It was it was a, a, a kind of a fantastic carnival piece about Wales celebrating Welsh madness above all else, yeah. but also Welsh history and Welsh and the colonisation and the heavy and the industry and the raping and pillaging of the people. Are. But it, but it was to, to make it into a kind of a massive carnival show. And uh, when when I, I I talked to Adele Thomas a long time ago, a fair play, you know Adele, you know she she kind of I kept on sort of chatting to her, and then when Adele got the job. And then she took it to a level which I would never even have expected. And I, you know, I like sending, uh, you know, <coughs> window cleaners going up 22, uh, 22 floors on the stage. So, so she took it to somewhere completely yeah. different. And she really captured the whole spirit of it. And she helped me uh, with with some areas that weren't quite weren't quite together. And it, and it it was going to be a an absolutely stunning show. And. And yes, I wrote it, but I don't feel that it's mine anymore. I feel it belongs to the costumers and the choreographers and the you know the lighting people and the musicians and the actors. Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel sorry for them that it's just it's just kind of sitting in a cave, you know, waiting to waiting, hopefully waiting to to, to come back. You know. You talk about a celebration and a. Of colourful pictures that you painted just now. Hopefully, there'll be a celebration of that play in the future when everything opens up. Because I would really, really like to see it. It's, um... Yeah, I, well, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll come with you. But, um, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is a, it's, it is, a, it is a, a huge. Show. I mean, there's a catwalk element to it. There's a carnival element. There's a circus element. Wow. It's it's live rock music, which is kind of in a weird kind of post-punk kind of thing. And the acting, you know, there's a, there's a dancing Mona Lisa. There are there are people being hung, doing line dancing. You know, it is it it it, it is it is all of Welsh madness on the stage. And and Welsh madness is something. And I'm not talking about mental health madness. I'm talking about the mad kind of uh, pulling together of different ideas. Mm. Uh, the strange happenings, the strange mythology and mysticism of Wales, and this show was definitely going to celebrate that. But the interesting thing is, I think that I think because of the Yes Cymru campaign, and this isn't a a nationalistic show; it's just celebrating Wales and yeah. knocking England. So maybe you could call it a nationalistic <laughs> show. But it's it, Wales is more ready for it, I think now. I think people are aware that we've had different rules under lockdown to, to yeah. England. So, yeah, I'm really hoping that it comes. Because it's the biggest thing I've ever done. And I probably will never do anything as big as this again. And, and so if it doesn't happen, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I'm sure it will. Um, it's too good not to go on. <laughs> um, I'm going to move on slightly. Um, 
Aber insofern, you enjoy or tend to write comedies. Um, what are the challenges of writing comedy for the stage? And why do you think that we've had this trend in recent years of less comedies being produced in theatres in Wales? Well, it's interesting to use the word comedy because I, I like to put people on the stage that have a sense of humour. So I'm not trying to write comedy. But I'm trying to write pe- things about people who have, like William Price. You know, he lost he lost a child. Mm. He was heart. He was absolutely heartbroken, and yet that is still in a in a in a play with lots of comedic elements to it. But he, but I, we've made him a funny guy. You know, uh, and Lee uh, Lee Mengo has got this lovely, charming personality. So he made him even funnier. But actually, there's a dark, dark heart in Doctor mm. Price. So. It's not necessarily about writing comedy. It's about finding the lightness and the darkness. Because if it's just dark, then what's the point? You know, yeah. why are you going to go to a dark theatre to watch a dark play? And I, I, and I know yes. lots of people like like dark plays, and I totally accept that. But I, I'm not, I'm not one for that. I'm one for something <clears throat> that's bittersweet, something that's kind of light-hearted, but with an element of doom about it. You know. That's that's kind of where I, where I like to operate really. Because life has light and shade, light and darkness, and I think yeah, you're right. We should reflect that on our stages. Um, it, it's interesting because when you walk around, say Lan, you talk to people, and they could be doctors, they could be nurses, they could be policemen, <laughs> but they're funny. Mm. And yet in a cop drama or a nursing drama, people aren't funny. But why can't people be funny without it being a comedy? Why, why does it have to be, oh, there's too many laughs in here? Uh, it's, it's not really mm. as dramatic as it should be, or thriller, as much as thriller as it should be. It's just nonsense. People generally are funny. Yeah. You know? In TV, it's just like the... They're two genres completely separate from each other, and there can be no oh, yeah. kind of interlinking, which is ridiculous, because comedy happens. Comedy is used. What they say, comedy is tragedy plus time. So we use yeah. comedy to like to deal with the negative things that happen in life. That's how we use comedy, I think. Yeah, and, and some of the best TV, like say, you know, the early seasons of Shameless, or uh, Penny Smeden way back in the day, there's a lot of humour to them. But people think, yeah, people want to differentiate now. They, they, you know, you can't have two joking cops in a in a murder case, even though the cops might be joking in real life, yeah. because they, it's got to be bleak otherwise the audience gets confused you know so and we need to educate the audiences to say no you can have this Mm. you can have light and you can have dark and you can have it at the same time so i don't you know unless you're trying to write a sitcom with full of gags like the max not going out unless you're trying to do that even the mighty bush there was julian barrett's character was was distraught most of the time Mm. he was he's, he's lacking ambition he was melancholy and that's in a that's in a comedy show, so you can have you can have these things definitely. 
And um, then again, um, due lockdown, uh, you've written three video albums containing funny and sometimes offensive songs about Covid, Brexit and Britain during lockdown. Um, how did you decide to, to write these albums? Well, on, on March the 16th last year, um, I, I got a text from Adele saying they were shutting the show down and then mm. uh, Lauren Campbell uh, rang me and said, sorry, we're, you know, we're opening in five days, but it's, it's, it's off. And at the time I thought, well, you know, there are, there are doctors, there are nurses, there are people still having to work in shops and they're, they don't know what's going to happen and they're frightened. So I, I can't be self-indulgent, I can't be self-piteous. By the middle of May, I was quite self-piteous. I was like, oh my God, you know, and I know everything else and I know all that, but I felt, I felt a bit gloomy. So I, I, I'm friendly with Martin Rose from The Guardian cartoonist who comes down to Lard regularly and... Uh, you know, we've got to know each other over the years, and he writes poems. So I sort of said, you know, have you, have you got any poems uh, about COVID? He said, well, I've written 15. <laughs> he sent them to me, he sent it to me and, I, and I set some to music, and then we ended up doing 52 over in 10 months. And, and it, do you know what? It was, it, I was doing something every day for 10 months, even if it was just doing a little chord change or, or singing it. Or, yeah. And we used people we knew. We just asked people, do you want to sing over this or talk over this with people like Kaylin Jones, the actor and Jack Claff who was in the first Star Wars film <clears throat> and Jane Williams who's a wonderful uh, singer in South Wales and, and, and lots of different people and and, and then I said it to Ken Loach it was just as it was so, left, so left wing as you do. And, <laughs> and he came back and said he gave us a quote that we could use and oh, Jonathan yeah. Price gave us a quote we could use and and all of a sudden, it was kind of, I was getting these kind of reviews for it. And I was only doing the music, but I, mm. but I, you know, I was arranging the, the songs and, and producing it. And it sort of got, it got a life of its own, really. And, uh, and it certainly kept me busy because I said, mm. you know, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't pitch another musical in that time. In fact, I don't think I could pitch another musical until the information has gone on. So it just kept me busy and it's kind of re some rewards because, <clears throat> There's a couple of theatre companies now. I wrote it up into a sort of stage review, and a couple of theatre companies are looking at it. And that was done for nothing. Right. And it's mad and, and different. But that, but that's where I think that's where the great art is. And I'm not saying it's great art, but I'm, I mean different art. I think something, especially in this day and age, I think we need something to be humorous or offensive or different. And if and if something's all three, then you've got a better chance of of success than saying, you know, I, I've set a, a sitcom in a haulage company. And, yeah, it's like it's millions of ideas like that. Mm. What 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 can you do that makes you stand out from the crowd? And that I suppose is a way to get noticed, to get your work noticed. Yeah, and. and yeah, yeah, it's it. You just you just do it for the love. You do it mm. for the love. I, I think that's the only one thing I can say. I mean, yeah, I'd love to be have three shows traveling the world and be about doing it. It'll never happen. But so you got to do it for love. Mm. And always disappointed all the time because you keep pitching stuff to people and they keep turning it down. And you've just got to do something different for the love of it. Mm. 
Absolutely. So you've written uh, essays and e-books on the work of Dylan Thomas, famous lamb resident. How much of an inspiration has he been to you as a writer? And how important do you think he is for Wales as a country and our kind of cultural heritage? Wow, big question. Yes. Uh, I think, I think, I, 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 I love his work. And, and, I think Aris Thomas is equally as important. I think Harry Webb, the, the, the Welsh poet who died a few years back, he is incredibly important. Um, but, but because we've got so few people who really travel the world, and, mm. and, and, and we should have more because there's a lot of creativity in Wales. But so going back to your point, Dylan Thomas, yeah. Well, I'm living in love, you know. I'm, I, I've always come down to Larne to, to visit the boathouse. I worked there for three years, which is why I read everything about Dylan, mm. which is why I could write the BBC book, um, which is why I could help National Theatre Wales with Mark Rees. So it's all kind of, it's all up. And maybe one day when I'm 102, I'll be able to work out a pattern. Um, but at the moment, I'm just uh, still trying to find uh, a pattern. <laughs> still trying to make the central of the tapestry, I think. I think we're all trying to find those patterns of making sense of everything. It's just finding those things that help us make sense of the world, I guess, if that's not too much of a philosophical point. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's interesting because artists always think that if they make it, there'll be, there'll be a contentment or they'll they have a publicity, a public figure, sort of notoriety or notoriety, whatever. <laughs> Actually, a lot of famous people are very insecure yeah. and very depressed. And so, but but when you're when you haven't sort of particularly made it, that, that that's the dream. But the actuality is the dream is the art. The dream isn't mm. the being successful because that that causes a lot of problems. And yes, you know, we'd all have a bit more money, of course. But it's, it doesn't stop when you get successful and your brain doesn't really change your lifestyle, right? But it's all mm. about the work. And, you know, I, I came back to it before, but find something, play it, work it out, make it different, you know. Um, so I'm sorry, like I'm preaching now. No, no. I've got, got a three-year-old and I didn't get much sleep last night. So. <laughs> Find it at all really, really interesting. And the last thing I'm going to ask you before we finish is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry? Um, you're not, commissions are difficult. To make it as a full-time writer is difficult. So, unless you're Shakespeare or Dylan Thomas, 
work at your craft and work and work and work, but have a job, you know, do anything. I've, I've stacked shelves, I've been a labourer, I've done all sorts of things, because you meet people and you, you hear stories and you hear different perspectives on the world. And when you're ready to, to, to think that you've got something that you think is particularly special, <clears throat> just just work on it, work on it and show your friends. And, and if it's a play, get your friends around to read it. And Because there's nothing like hearing your play being read out to know uh, the errors you've made in it. And, 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 and hope that if it, it rises, it, your work rises to a level where when it, when, if you do pitch it to some of the you know the few companies in Wales that somebody does come back to you and say, I like this. We're not mm. going to put it on. We can't do it this year or next year, and you've got you've got a cast of twenty seven people. <laughs> but 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 it's it, it's yeah, I, I, and unfortunately, and and I don't like saying this, but you know, there are lots of theatrical agents in London. There are lots of people looking for new writers in London. Mm. I mean, the, the, the companies would argue there are people looking for new writers in Cardiff. There's a lot more uh, people looking for writers in London. And, and so just be confident with your work, study, read the stuff you love. Don't read the stuff you don't love. And find your voice, I think. And find your voice and... Uh, you know, find people like me because people send me scripts and ideas and stuff, and you know, I'll, I'll give an honest appraisal. You know, and sometimes they're really, really good. It's like, what a brilliant idea! You know, so there are, you know, I'm sure, you know, other uh, playwrights, directors, producers. If somebody got in touch and said, "Look, I, I believe in this. Here's a one-page version of what I'm doing," because you know, it's not like networking in the old days in the BBC bar or, you know, in, 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 in you know, in various pubs. A lot of people don't go out anymore. So I think it's about finding an online network, which is yes. which is more accessible these days, especially because of lockdown. I think lockdown would really help people communicate better. Oh, it has done for me. I mean, <laughs> having, having those conversations with people who I wouldn't otherwise have had access to. As a disabled writer, sometimes it's difficult to travel long distance to meet directors, so having meetings on Zoom has made this world a whole lot more accessible for me. And I, I know that I've had conversations that I wouldn't have been able to have without this lockdown. Um, yeah, it would seem bizarre now for you to you know, head to London or Cardiff or anywhere to have, to have a meeting when you can just yeah. do it like this. Oh, you know, I've I travelled to London to be told that they didn't want the script. Yeah. That must be hard. I wish Zoom was. I wish Zoom was around. They could afford me. You know, this was like this was in the nineties. You know, I wish they could afford me. Yeah, you know, nothing worse. <laughs> uh, on that note, um, we can finish. But thank you so much for your time, John. It's been brilliant talking to you. Um. I will see you on the next episode of In Lockdown With. But until then, it's bye from me and bye from John. Bye bye. Cheers. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.